welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. It's mid-October. Visitation season is slowing down for the northern tier of the United States in the national park system, but that doesn't mean news from the parks is ebbing. In the past handful of weeks, we've seen an incident with a black bear along the Blue Ridge Parkway. A woman who got too close to a grizzly sow and her cubs at Yellowstone was actually sentenced to jail for four days. And President Biden has restored, at least for now, the original boundaries of Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments in Utah and returned the original protections for Northeast Canyons and Seamounts National Monument some 130 miles or so off the coast of Cape Cod. I'm Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. To discuss and dissect these and other stories, I've brought in contributing editor Kim O'Connell. We'll be right back after a short break to parse these news events. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Nova Scotia. 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. Well, hi, Kim. Welcome back to The Traveler. It's good to hear you. Great to be here, as always, Kurt. Thank you. You know, as I said in my introduction, it's been quite the news-generating season, it seems, in just the past few weeks, past month or so, maybe, across the park system. I don't know where to start. I mean, um, maybe the Blue Ridge Parkway, because that's your neck of the woods. You just were down there. Um, what do you think about this incident with uh, the couple who was uh, picnicking and they had their dog off leash and 
the dog, uh, I guess, was alerted to a black bear, and uh, the black bear did not run off, but rather ran towards the couple and um, injured them to some degree. I guess part of the injuries were inflicted by the bear, and part of them, um, as a couple was trying to get away from the bear and into the car, I guess one dislocated a shoulder. What do you make out of this? Well, I think these incidents are, you know, they always make big news because they're dramatic. I think it's still fairly unusual for there to be bare human conflict like this, but it's possible that it's increasing or that we're hearing about it more because the bear populations are absolutely exploding throughout the Southern Appalachians and, you know, throughout the country, I think. So um, especially in Great Smoky Mountains and Blue Ridge Parkway and Shenandoah, black bears are doing very well. Um, the habitat has, you know, really is really robust for them. There's these protections with the national parks. So there's bears everywhere. And so uh, visitors really need to be educated and aware of how to behave in bear country. And one of the things I've written about for the traveler is a program called Bearwise, right. which people can go to called bearwise.org to get some great material about what to do if they see a black bear, because, uh, you know, in the past, we were always told, you know, you probably won't see a black bear. Or if you do, they're going to run away. But because there's so many black bears and they're all competing for habitat and there's so many of us. And as we've talked about, there's so many visitors to the park right now, the chances for these conflicts are going to be increasing. So we need to know what to do. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we had two um, incident in Great Smoky Mountains National Park in the past year, roughly, of um, predatory black bears. Um, the, the teenager who was attacked in the middle of the night by a black bear, and then there was uh, the backpacker um, deep in the park who um, they determined was killed by the bear. You know, I'd reached out to Dr. Stephen Herrero, who might be North America's um, top expert when it comes to black bears and grizzly bears and their attacks, and uh, he thought it was very unusual, but, but as you point out, um, I don't know if it's because there's more... 24-hour news out there or, um, you know, news media goes for the sensational, but we're, we're hearing about these cases. We are. And the upside of that, whether it is somewhat sensationalized, the upside is every time we talk about this, it's an opportunity for education. People shouldn't be afraid to come to the national parks. They're most likely not going to ever be attacked by a black bear, and they will feel lucky if they do even see a black bear. I was just in Great Smoky Mountains a couple of weeks ago, and I saw two black bears, and they were really fun you know, sites to see from a distance. But, you know, I think as long as we can keep talking about education and proper visitor behavior, which I know is an ongoing challenge for those of us who cover the national parks, you know, we can turn those sensational stories into a positive, I think. Yeah, yeah. Now, what's what's interesting about the, the Blue Ridge Parkway incident, you know, according to the park staff, this wasn't really out in the wilderness. It happened in downtown Asheville, I understand, at the, the music uh, center, which is kind of unusual. Yeah, the bears are coming to where we are, and we're coming to where the bears are. Um, the two bears I saw at Great Smokies um, were both along the side of the main park road. You know, there's yeah. plenty of backcountry in the Smokies, and there's even, you know, swaths of, you know, wild areas along the Blue Ridge Parkway, but there's also plenty of spaces where we are, where roads are and facilities are. So, these conflicts are going to happen, even though they are, I think, as a percentage, relatively small. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, um, reading some of the comments on Traveler's website and on our Facebook page, a lot of people claimed that um, Asheville does not do a very good job in, in educating its residents on how to be bear-wise. Um, 
I don't know if that's true or not, but there were a lot of comments to that point. Now, another story that you worked on and um, um, has gotten some some rave reviews, both from the Park Service and the, the state of Maryland, was about uh, storytelling in the Chesapeake Bay and um, the possibility that um, there will be a move to create a Chesapeake Bay National Recreation Area. That's super exciting. I grew up in Maryland. I feeling like the bay was my backyard. It's a incredibly special waterway, an incredibly special watershed um, with vast uh, natural and cultural resources. And the Park Service has had a presence in the Chesapeake Bay watershed for a very long time. There are several national park units that are tied to the Chesapeake Bay. And the Park Service is well-versed in partnering with state and local and private entities, museums, uh, watermen, fishermen in the Chesapeake Bay area. But there hasn't been this kind of umbrella structure where the Park Service kind of had some oversight over the entire bay. And I'm not even sure oversight is is exactly the right word, but the idea is to kind of have a rising tide lifts all ships. And if there's a national recreation area, like maybe that kind of gives all these sites something to hold on to that kind of elevates the resource and makes sure that the bay is getting all the conservation, you know, attention that it deserves. You know, it's interesting. I mean, the the rich history there, you know, that goes back to uh, when Captain John Smith sailed up the, the bay and, and spent, I don't know, I guess two trips there exploring and going up some of the rivers and um, interacting with uh, some of the Native Americans there. It, it's interesting that after all these hundreds of years that we're finally starting to see this movement that, you know, this is such a special place that, yes, we've got the Captain John Smith Chesapeake Historic Water Trail, and we've got um, some individual smaller units of the park system, but to embrace the whole region, and as you brought forth in your story recently on The Traveler, all the stories that are intermingled through that region is just fascinating. That's right. I was writing about the this new storytellers program that the Park Service is partnering on with the Maryland Department of Tourism, and the idea is to you know, have the Park Service share long-held storytelling techniques that park rangers use with, you know, museum directors and people that run museums and people that give tours along the bay who are already interacting with the public a lot. But the idea is to kind of create more of a synthesis between the kind of lived stories of the people that live and work along the bay and kind of match that with a greater understanding of the conservation and natural resource issues and cultural resource issues that the Park Service is so well versed in and all those partnerships little by little help to kind of create support for a national recreation area you know the the watermen the the historic people that live and work around the bay are fiercely independent and protective of their resource and that has sometimes led to conflicts between people that you know depend on the bay for their livelihoods and those that want to interpret the bay and kind of view it as a tourist attraction and i think this effort is part of several efforts to try and create more partnerships between these groups that have sometimes been at odds. You know, you mentioned conflict and and one of the recent stories that um, came up and uh, will continue to bubble to the surface over the coming months, if not years, is on the opposite end of the country at uh, Point Reyes National Seashore and the, the Park Service's decision to extend by, I think, 20 years, the ranching operations. Mm-hmm on the seashore. And that has stirred a lot of conflict um, between users and conservationists and the ranching industry. Yeah, it's a tough story. And um, 
on one hand, you've got the, the heritage of the area being, you know, ranched for, I guess, going back to the 1800s and um, the, the conflicts of uh, it's a national park and we shouldn't have cattle overgrazing and, and harming riparian areas. And it, it'll be interesting to see how that comes about, uh, re- resolves itself. I feel like we have a lot of intelligent people in this country and reasonable people can come together and try to come up with some solutions. I refuse to think that that some sort of common ground can't be found in these kinds of difficult places. So, well, it's it's been I'm a Pollyanna uh, though, Kurt. So, we'll it, see. <laughs> it's de- been debated for quite some time and it goes back to the Drake's uh, uh, oyster oyster farm and um, mm. we know how that turned out with the oyster farm being told you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here um, ah, right. and put that one out of business. So I don't know. It, it's something that um, ho- hopefully we'll get a chance to take a deeper dive into with some of our writers. Yeah, um, that sounds great. You know, one of the interesting issues that, that came up the other day um, was a, um, a video calling for the National Park Service to allow superintendents to, um, I guess, raise entrance fees to, to make them more more equitable to um, um, support park operations. And um, at Yellowstone, I know that the superintendent was in this video, Camp Shali, and he pointed out that, you know, a family of four, the entrance fee is $35, and the average stay in Yellowstone is 3.2 days, which that boggles my mind because I think you need at least a week. But anyway, if you take that family of four with the entrance fee of uh, $35 over 3.2 days, that works out to two. $2.89 $2.89 a person Wow! to, to explore that incredible landscape. And they compared it to um, Disney World, where I think um, it's $100, $110 per person for a day. And right. um, um, the, the Space Needle in Seattle, which um, I forget off the top of my head what it was, whether it was $35 per person or whatnot. And so on one hand, there is this incredible disparity or what appears to be an incredible disparity. But on the other hand, you know, our tax dollars pay for these national parks, and why should we have to pay to, to get into them? I mean, any, any thoughts on that? Well, I think you've laid out the central conflict that, you know, they're in very well. Um, yeah, we don't feel like we're, our money is already going to pay for the Space Needle or Disney World. So we make the choice to go there. So it feels like, well, at least I haven't been supporting this park all along, so I can, you know, um, spend the money for this special vacation to go to Disney, but it's tough when you're paying your tax dollars all year long, year after year after year to support these national parks and then be confronted with, you know, a higher than expected entrance fee. So I completely understand the conflict there, but at the same time, our parks need more money. That's just the bottom line. We keep trying different things. We keep wrangling over this year after year in Congress. We know this backlog exists and it's, Probably, probably getting bigger as far as we know, because um, the parks are being more and more pressured. So something has to give somewhere. And I do like that there's this sense that the people working in the parks who know the parks the best are offering ideas about what that park should charge. That's probably going to go over better than sort of a top-down, across-the-board fee increase, which I don't think would ever fly um, with the national park system. So but it, it's really tough. I, I'm not sure what the answer is there. Yeah, well, we saw the um, the reaction back in 2017 when um, then Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke proposed 
a rather large increase in entrance fees for a number of parks. The Crown Jewels, I think it was $70 a week. And there was outrage, and um, somebody conducted a poll that said 64% of those surveyed would probably not go to a national park if the fees were increased that much. And um, so in the end, we saw a $5 increase. You know, Yellowstone went from 30 to $35. An interesting statistic that um, Cam Sholley shared with me, um, you know, we always hear, well, my, my tax dollars pay for the national parks. And um, Cam said that roughly maybe a dime of your tax dollars go to pay for the national parks. That's um, interesting. There is some uh, inequities there for sure. And, um, you know, one other thing to keep in mind is that there are 423 units of the national park system. And I think only 134 or 135 charge entrance fees. Mm-hmm. So I think I think there are a lot of possibilities to raise additional money for the park system without gouging anyone. I mean, you could, uh, I think you could expand the, uh, the entrance fees to all 423 national parks units of the park system. You could, I think that uh, sounds perfectly reasonable and that yeah. the American people would probably accept that as long as those entrance fees were sort of low and reasonable and in, in keeping with what they expect from the national park system. Yeah, yeah. You could um, charge foreign visitors more. And, you know, I, I hate to see that discussion come up, but, you know, if, if you're an American, you go over to Africa, you know, you're paying at some parks 40 or $50 a day to go visit them. And as uh, Cam Shelley pointed out to me, the foreign visitors who come to the U.S. don't pay U.S. taxes. And so they're actually paying less to get into a park than you and I are since our tax dollars go to them. That's interesting. It really is interesting, and um, we're going to take a short break, but I'm going to come back to this subject because there's another news event coming up on Tuesday that will be most interesting to watch what happens. So this is Kurt Rappencheck and Kim O'Connell. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Hey everyone, our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, is offering a great deal to their members. Now, through October 31st, 2021, get up to $500 in closing costs with a new home equity loan. Apply at interiorfcu.org for membership and a loan. Membership is required, equal housing lender. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. 
It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. All right, we're back with contributing editor Kim O'Connell talking about news that's uh, really been um, quite plentiful in recent weeks in the national park system. Kim, we were just talking about the funding problems with the national park system, the National Park Service, and what can be done about it. On Tuesday, the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee will have a hearing, a confirmation hearing, on Charles F. Sams, the Interior Department's nominee for Park Service Director. And um, I think that's going to be a most interesting hearing um, for a variety of reasons. One is that he's from outside the national park system. And and what type of ideas he brings into the park system, if confirmed. Yeah, that's very exciting. I know that when the traveler uh, wrote about Sam's nomination, that you wrote about how uni- not quite universally, but very highly praised he comes to the National Park Service. He's got a great background in national resources and I think will bring a really fresh perspective to the Park Service. I know we were both kind of waiting and wondering because it's been several weeks since that announcement and wondering whether the administration would get around to it or whether Congress would get around to this confirmation hearing. So it's definitely good news that it's happening having lived outside of DC my entire life, I know that things grind to a halt very quickly. So I, you know, I hope that this actually, you know, goes forward and we actually ultimately end up with a national park service director. We'll see what happens. <laughs> you know, actually it's been more than a, a couple of weeks. He was uh, nominated, I believe in mid August. So it's been yeah, a I couple of months. I think I meant months. to say a couple months. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, right. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is he, he's native American. Um, he's an enrolled member of the Cayuse and Walla Walla of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation in southeastern Washington, northeastern Oregon. And um, he would be the first Native American to serve as Park Service Director if um, confirmed. And, yeah, it'll be interesting to see the views that he brings. Um, I was talking to to Phil Francis, the uh, chairman of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, the other day. And they actually were able to interview Mr. Sams. Um, I reached out to him. He said that... uh, he couldn't talk to the media right now, but apparently he can talk to advocacy groups. But Phil came away pretty impressed with um, what Mr. Sams had to offer. So um, I know I'm going to tune in on Tuesday to watch that confirmation hearing, and, and I'll be interested to see what questions are asked and how he responds to them. Because there certainly are no uh, shortage of issues within the National Park Service, as well as the park system, that need um, attention. We haven't had a Senate confirmed National Park Service director since John Jarvis left at the end of the Obama administration. Yeah, and a lot has happened in those intervening years. Um, And I feel like I've never been a National Park Service employee, but I imagine that not having someone at the head of your agency is hard on morale, you know, so I'm hoping that, you know, having an energetic person with fresh ideas at the head of this agency is good for park system employees across the country. And it's also good for park visitors and park lovers to know that there's somebody at the helm of this agency kind of with a with a long view and a, a broad view of the parks and what their needs are. So I'm hoping that all comes to pass. We'll see. And I'm hoping that, you know, if, if Mr. Sams is confirmed, that he's not afraid to, to push some boundaries. Um, one thing that has befuddled me 
is why Zion National Park is taking so long to come up with a visitor use management plan. I mean, it's been five or six years now. They know they've got a problem. They, they finally put something out that uh, they're going to try and um, control the, the number of people going up to Angel's Landing. But um, same thing with Arches National Park across the, the state of Utah. They've got an incredible um, congestion problem. Um, they, they close the park entrance on a regular basis almost every morning because there's so much traffic coming into it. They tried to come up with a reservation system um, during the Trump administration, and uh, apparently David Bernhardt didn't like it because uh, there was concern among the locals, and the Utah congressional delegation does not like the idea of a reservation system. But, but these are things that need to happen if we are to both protect park resources and protect the park experience for those people who visit national parks. Exactly. You know, there was um, just um, from Yellowstone National Park, they passed 4 million visitors for the first time at the end of September. They've never seen 4 million visitors in a year. This was, you know, the still with the COVID pandemic going on, I know the, the concessionaires are not operating at full speed uh, staff-wise. I don't think the parks itself is operating at full speed. I think the number was um, almost four and a half million. And in, in September, they saw 872,000 visitors. It's sheer craziness. I mean, in, in terms of um, the congestion and the resource damage and the, the stress on the park staff. It really is, and it's happening across the country. Everywhere, I was just in the Great Smoky Mountains. I know we've talked a lot about crowding, especially since the pandemic started, but it was yet another really crowded trip through the Smokies. And anyone who's gone to the Smokies knows how gorgeous it is, but they also know what it's like to be in bumper-to-bumper traffic moving through the one park road. Um, These parks are under pressure, and so we need these plans. We need these fresh ideas. We need them to not only be written and developed, but then implemented on the ground, which is its you know its own process that yeah. takes time. So it'd be nice to see the needle move on some of that stuff. It really would be. And um, you know, I, I've talked to the, the current Yellowstone superintendent and the, his his uh, predecessor, and I said, why can't you guys put in a temporary cap on visitation until you figure this thing out? And um, not sure what the answer is to that, but um, we are seeing more and more people crowding into the national parks. And it's, you know, great to see people rediscovering the outdoors or discovering them for the first time. But really, um, these places can't take it. I just don't think they can take it. And so we'll, we'll be interested to see um, proposals for new national parks. Um, whether that happens or not, I, I don't know. It's uh, always a, 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 a topic for conversation. But along with all this visitation that we've seen in the national parks, and I hate to keep coming back to Yellowstone, but that seems to be um, a hot spot. We had an incident earlier this um, summer where there was a, a grizzly sow and her cubs um, near a park pullover, pullout. And um, a lot of people out there photographing the, the bears. And um, I guess the bears started moving a little bit closer to the road. And everybody but this one woman retreated to their cars and, you know, they were yelling at her, get in your car, get in your car. She didn't get in her car. She was videotaped, videotaping the bears. Long story short, she was cited by rangers and she was given a jail sentence of four days. And, you know, we've long heard public cries for, for harsher penalties on individuals. Um, what do you think about that? Four days in jail for um, videotaping a bear. 
I mean, I wouldn't want to languish in jail for four days or even four hours. Um, but at the same time, I'm probably in the camp of people that have been frustrated by seeing with my own eyes and reading about park visitors that ignore all the guidance that's out there about keeping your distance from, from wild animals. I mean, this is a chronic, never-ending issue in the parks. And as we have more people coming into these parks, more of these kinds of things are going to happen. It's truly damaging for uh, park resources, including these wild animals, to come in conflict with, with people. And as we already said earlier in the conversation, sometimes it happens just as a fluke freak situation, but let's not court the situation. Let's not, you know, encourage uh, people to, you know, create those difficult situations where they're getting too close to wild animals because that's dangerous for them and others and for the animals. Um, so I think maybe it is high time to see some harsher um, penalties, you know, handed down in these cases. And, you know, we've seen this, you know, with both you know, racial injustice and other issues that have come to light in the last few years, everybody has a video camera on their phones now. And so, you know, if you do something wrong in the national parks, chances are someone's got it on videotape. And so um, videotape, my kids would laugh if they heard me say that yeah, they've got yeah. it on video. And so, you know, there's just, you know, there's just no excuse for behaving badly these days in the parks. And, so, you know, I'm sure it wasn't fun for this woman and I hope she's learned her lesson, but more importantly, I hope other people have learned a lesson from seeing what happened. Yeah, she was uh, fined, I think it was a thousand dollars that she had to give to a, a program. But, you know, going back to a little earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that Bearwise program, and uh, I believe you've told me how um, it's starting to get some legs and moving out of the Great Smoky Mountains and possibly spreading across the country. But maybe this would have been a better opportunity for a, a teaching and an educational moment by, you know, okay, let's find the woman or find the individual who, who gets too close to wildlife X amount of dollars and let's make them give a donation to the Bearwise program and make them spend two or three days learning about the Bearwise program and why what they did was wrong and, and how better we can protect these wildlife that we all want to see. That's right. I mean, it would be great if if that person and other people would have more education. Um, so I'd be all for that kind of thing. I, I think the Park Service's social media teams have been phenomenal in recent years, though, coming up with sort of catchy slogans and posters about keeping away from wildlife. So I feel like they, the Park Service, given all their limitations with funding and resource issues, as we've talked about, have actually kind of really captivated a lot of people with some of their you know public information outreach along these lines. And I hope they keep doing that because we obviously still need it. Yeah. Yeah. Another tragic story out of Yellowstone um, recently was uh, the young woman who um, was visiting the park with her father and their dog. And they got out to see a a hot spring. Um, And I guess the dog jumped out of the vehicle and saw the water and thought it'd be great to jump into the water, not realizing that was 200 degrees or a little bit warmer, and the, the young woman, not thinking, obviously, went in after the dog. And uh, last I heard, she was still in ICU in a hospital in eastern Idaho, and uh, the dog passed away. Um, tough, tough lesson. Tough lesson. Very tough. And and it's happened frequently. Not, well, maybe not frequently, but it's happened regularly in Yellowstone, as you know. I mean, and that's a tragic situation. It's actually happened with animals before that they've gone off leash or something and jumped in those pools. And I understand the human instinct to want to protect your pet. Um, it's just such a sad story. But but again, another opportunity to just to learn that these are wild places. 
they need to be respected. We need to keep our distance. We need to keep our animals close to us. You know, that's not to lay any blame at this person's feet who has suffered so much, but um, it's tough. It's, it's, you know, it's, there's a sharp contrast between Disney World and the national parks as we see over and over again. <laughs> it, there, there really is. There really is. And it, it's not just Yellowstone with its hot springs. I mean, you've got the Grand Canyon with um, people feel that they've got to climb over the fences to get a, a selfie right on the lip of the, the rims and they fall in. Um, you can go to uh, Acadia National Park and people getting too close to Thunder Hole when, uh, you know, the tide is high and the waves are crashing there. And we've seen uh, some fatalities there. Um, you could go on and on, pick a park, and there, there's um, people dying because they didn't fully appreciate or, or recognize the danger that exists out there. Right. I mean, it's very tragic when it happens. It's part of the beauty of the parks to me, though, is it does offer us, you know, a chance to remember that this is a big, wide and wild world. You know, we have to understand where the line is and not hurt ourselves or hurt others. But I think to be confronted with that reality of wilderness in our, you know, in our sort of like very sanitized normal lives is actually one of the great excitements of being in a national park. So it's just kind of like walking that line, I think. It really is. And, and you know, um, there, there's that saying, um, there but for the grace of God go I. I mean, I've um, paddled in Yellowstone National Park and the Big Lake um, most recently in August for five wonderful days. And I've been on Shoshone Lake, I think, five or six times over the years. And um, I've, I've raised my heart rate a couple times, but I've managed to go there and come home without incident. And uh, in late August, two, two gentlemen, um, two brothers, did not come home without incident. They um, somehow capsized on the lake and... Uh, the one they found his body on the shore. They still haven't found the other gentleman's body. They're both retired Park Service um, rangers, well experienced. So yeah, uh, it um, the split of a second can turn your fate for sure. Right. Um, well, the parks are still worth going to as long as we take every precaution we can just to be safe and respectful of our environment. Yeah, yeah. So, some good news, depending on um, what side of Utah you stand on, was um, President Biden's decision uh, the other week to uh, restore the original boundaries of uh, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase National Monuments in Utah and uh, restore the original protections of uh, Northeast Canyons and Seamounts National Monument um, off the coast of Cape Cod. Any thoughts on that one? Well, I think it's great news for conservation and for uh it's great news for the cultural resources that these um, monuments have um, for Native American tribes. Um, I do feel concerned about how these sites have become kind of political footballs. You know, they, I, I just worry that, you know, if we have another administration, things will go back and it just keeps ponging back and forth. So I'm, I'm a little worried about that. I think it's great news for, for these particular places that their boundaries have been restored. They certainly are worthy of them. But it's it's unfortunate that this kind of thing has become so politicized and that we just can't have agreement that these are worth including in the national park system. Or, or the Bureau of Land Management. Right, um, right. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's a tremendous waste of money and resources because, you know, the BLM and the, and the Forest Service and the Park Service have been working on management plans for these smaller monuments under the Trump administration. And now they've got a reverse course and come up with new management plans. And I'm sure that before they get those management plans done and implemented that um, there'll be a lawsuit. 
Um, I'm sure the state of Utah, the congressional delegation, will will try and do it. I, I did um, find it highly ironic that um, the congressional delegation from Utah was complaining that um, you know this was unjust, that uh, President Biden should have consulted with the stakeholders and they shouldn't have just uh, reversed uh, President Trump's actions. And yet they didn't complain at all when when President Trump uh, used his uh, legislative or authority through the well, I'm not sure what authority he had. We're still waiting to find out that. But they did. They were silent when he did it. So yeah, it depends on which side of the political fence you're on. And it, it, it is truly unfortunate. And the wheels of justice spin so slowly. You know, the day that um, President Trump stood on the, the steps of the Utah Capitol and um, announced the um, his proclamation to reduce by more than a million acres those two monuments, lawsuits were filed in Washington. And those lawsuits never made their way to fruition for various reasons. And um, I don't know if uh, um, the groups are going to withdraw them or, you know, it would be nice to see the matter go up to the Supreme Court on whether or not a president can reduce a previous monument. Yeah, uh, it does seem like we, we need to get to settled, a settled situation so this just doesn't keep happening. No, we do. We do. Um, what, what's kind of interesting, maybe it's a, a peek at what the Supreme Court might do, but there was a, a lawsuit brought over um, Northeast Canyons and Seamounts by the commercial fishing industry. And um, it was um, it, it went up to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court wouldn't hear it. Um, mm. And one thing that Chief Justice John Roberts you know, raised was, you know, Perhaps if they had framed the question of how big does a national monument have to be or how small does it need to be, that we might have ruled on that. And so I think by um, showing his hand a little bit, we're going to see if next time a similar case reaches the Supreme Court. I think it'll be very interesting to see how the court goes. Yeah. Well, Cam, it's been great going over these issues. Um, it's unfortunate some of the issues that we had to talk about um, because uh, the parks are a wondrous resource. and. Um, Everybody should have the ability to enjoy them and marvel at them and learn from them. But I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me. What are you working on for The Traveler? I know you've got a couple of stories that uh, you're going to be cranking out in the coming uh, weeks, if not months. Well, I'm working on two stories dealing with invasives. And I know The Traveler has been doing a lot of coverage about invasive uh, species of different types. Um, I was just in the Great Smoky Mountains, as I mentioned earlier, and I was doing some research about invasive mammals and the problem there at the Smokies, namely with feral hogs and how the park serves or how the park there is actually doing some amazing things with technology to kind of make up for the fact that they don't have a huge uh, sort of scientist or wildlife biologist team. So they sort of spread their ability to deal with invasive issues using technology. So I'm writing about that. And then I'm also writing a piece about um, invasive insects and their impacts on forest health. And um, so, and talking about forest health issues throughout uh, the park system, primarily on the East Coast. And I met with a scientist at Great Smokies who was telling about some like the woolly adelgid and the emerald ash borer and some other uh, sort of little frustrating uh, insects are impacting the forest health there in the Smokies. And I wanted to share one interesting tidbit that the scientist shared with me, which was she was keeping an eye on a hemlock in the park that was a really, you know, just majestic tree and was impacted by one of these invasives and eventually fell. And so as soon as the tree fell, the, the park scientists went to count the rings and figure out how old the tree was. 
and it was over 400 years old. Wow. So that was just a really powerful example of the resources we have available in our national parks that, and why we need to take care of them and protect them from invasives and other issues that, that harm them because we have old growth forest um, right there in Great Smoky Mountains as we do in many other parks. So that was a really interesting experience and those are two things that I'm working on. Yeah, no, I'll be looking forward to, to seeing those pieces and um, catching up with you down the road. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks so much, Kim. Looking forward to uh, those stories and uh, further discussions. Thanks, Kurt. And that's our show for this week. Coming in November, National Parks Traveler will be launching a capital campaign for our nonprofit news organization, to enable us to provide you with more extensive coverage of national parks and protected areas. This is the biggest fundraiser the traveler has ever embarked upon, and with your help, we'll come away with a much sturdier financial footing. The Traveler is more than just a weekly podcast or daily news source tracking the national park system and protected areas. It is your source for discovering new destinations in the park system and understanding the various issues that affect the parks and the National Park Service. We look forward to expanding our reach and our audience with your help. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides a background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.